No lizards. No aliens. No nonsense. This is Reality Bites in association with Sovereign Independent UK and One World Chronicle. to Awake Radio. Straight talk to the Awake and Aware. Welcome to Rally Awake Radio on the 14th of August 2014 and we have our regular monthly guest Alan Watt on the line. And uh, I think we'll just fire straight into it, Alan, because uh, we're going to go through your, your first three volumes of your your, um, your writings. Mm-hmm. And uh, going back to 1999, the first one, the second one I think was 1999, and the third volume was 2003. Yeah. Um, I suppose that the um, the logical question to ask is what what inspires you to uh, to write this these these three volumes to start with? Well, I used to listen to different um, uh, shows at night, radio shows mainly. And uh, somehow or another, I ended up getting on one because I, I listened to people being sort of bewildered as to what was happening in the world. And uh, they went to all areas of uh, how long has this system existed, what is this system, all kinds of answers to it and so on. Uh, but they didn't know the histories. And so I, uh, someone said, why don't you write that? And I, why don't you just go on the radio and talk about it? Why don't you just put it in some book form? And so I did. And uh and give them basic stuff, basically. For me, it's basic, anyway. And uh, it gives them a leg up as to what this this whole reality that we take for granted, what it really is, how it came to be, uh, the processes and techniques behind it that uh, condition us all in all ages to accept the system we're living in has been quite normal, and uh, regardless of the conditions. And, uh, and that's really how it puts me off on, on that line of, uh, of of thinking and so on. And then after I got them out, two other shows asked me on, and um, and that's just it's just steamrolled from there. I really just thought it was time as well that, that uh, since I studied from for but basically my whole life studied in the libraries because uh, I was always asking the questions that other children weren't asking uh, at school. I thought I'll find it for myself, and uh, and I realised that. Uh, the, the material was there, the knowledge was there. It was like H.G. Wells called it the open conspiracy, you might say. And then when I got into the sciences behind it, the psychology, behaviorism, uh, all the teams and think tanks that, that, that the governments all hire to manage our lives for us, and the culture industry and how far back that went, uh, it, it's not such a, a mystery after all. You don't have to go looking out for aliens to do it. You know, it, it's all here. And uh, the human brain hasn't really changed for an awful long time, even in ancient times to the present. Uh, it's been the same, same brains, same nature, uh, power, wealth, and this odd thing called money uh, dictates a system that you will live in and be trained to believe is quite natural. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, vo- okay, let's start on volume one, uh, the androgynous hermaphroditic agenda. Yeah. Well, uh, that, that to me was uh, interesting because in, in ancient times, uh, it's sort of tied in with the present because the present sciences are working towards this. They have books out on it now, uh, and they're doing st- uh, tests with embryos and stem cells to see if they can create a hermaphrodite as a, as a human being. Uh, technically, what they say, it'll be the end of all conflict. 
that's always been used as, a, as an excuse to further a, a particular, very clever agenda. Uh, the, the recent day. That's why you've got uh, the rise of the feminist movement. It didn't come from the women themselves. It came from the big money boys that ran the system at the time. They financed these organizations into being to try to end what they call marriage and conflict and things like that. But you go back into ancient times and you'll find that behind all the gods, uh, you, you'll find the, the same story that God himself, whereas it's Brahma or whoever, uh, fertilized himself and gave birth, you see, uh, to, to what became his daughter, uh, Dash wife, etc. Uh, it's the same kind of story you find that Plato talks about when he talked about the ancient gods or ancient humans that were the golden race uh, that had a male appearance when they walked towards you, but a female appearance from behind. Meaning, is, is to the mystery religions of his day, he was talking about the hermaphrodite person. You see, uh, it took different transformations through Hinduism, into uh, uh, basically left brain, right brain, male, female, the perfect human being. There was a balance of emotion and logic, and that held sway right up through the, even the Western cultures, uh, through Darwinism up to the present time, basically. Uh, so it's always been a, 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 a hidden, you might say, manifestation of the agenda uh, that comes out in cryptic terms and terminology. NASA also, uh, a few years back, did a two-hour two hour documentary special on space travel, and they touched on that too, that it might be, it might be very difficult for long-term space travel for humans because of the time uh, it would take to get to planets and so on, and generations would, would get born and die, etc. But they also talked about the conflict on board that they could have uh, so what they came up with was an idea that uh, egg, eggs could be fertilized artificially uh, by machinery and computers in the ship or the craft uh, just before it gets to this destination. So they'd be frozen all that time, and then they would create uh, a, a hermaphroditic being which would therefore create no conflict between the male and female crew. Uh, so it's quite amazing to see science pick up on, on all of this. But... Um, it goes back again even to the eunuch idea. The eunuchs were pretty common across the Middle East, uh, and they were, they were used as uh, trusted servants, high, high servants and, uh, for, for uh, pashas and so on, and, and caliphs. And, and you find the reason was is because they said that they could concentrate on their work and their business and so on, and they wouldn't be swayed off by various passions or lusts, etc., so the hermaphrodite basically would be either a neutered creature um, altogether, but it wouldn't have uh, the same sexual urge or attraction uh, to copulate with uh, other other beings. Basically, that was that was part of it. Such a creature, they claim, would be a better worker, uh, not distracted, and uh, and get more done, less conflict, etc. In other words, better behaved, uh, easier to control on behalf of the masters who would not change themselves. Yep. Well, it's funny you should say that. We were um, we were sitting in a restaurant the other day there, and uh, we looked across at a table of young lads who were out for, I don't know, some um, school reunion or something, and uh, there wasn't a set of shoulders between them. You know, they, right. all had, they all had long hair and they were all as, as thin as rakes, but they, they must have been, you know, 18 year old and uh, not a bit of muscle on them, not... Yeah, well, here's the key to that. If you go into that, you'll find um, that even Professor Carl Quigley, when he wrote Tragedy and Hope, 
near the beginning of his book, he mentions the fact that uh, in the 60s, suddenly, suddenly they noticed uh, in the medical profession uh, that women were having, were having a, the, 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 the young, that one generation was coming up, 18, 20, uh, literally had uh, much narrower hips. And and very and uh, they didn't have the pelvic structure, and, they were, and that's when cesarean section really took off. Uh, but also, too, of course, as you say, there was a, a change in the male structure. We know the xeno or artificial estrogens that were fed and, and, and everything today uh, have been applied since the, 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 the late fifties onwards. And mind you, they knew what the estrogens, these xenoestrogens did, bisphenol A and so on. They knew that in the late 1800s in Germany. That was, so they knew what it did, the effect it would have on, on, the, on the male and on the female. But that's when they brought in uh, uh, a lot of stuff and the plastics and all the rest of it. And, and, um, and they even started to add it to baby food, by the way. Still, I think it's still in the baby food. Uh, they, they managed to get the FDA to reclassify it as a protein, even though it's actually a plastic waste. So uh, we're, we're really full of this stuff. Uh, and I think, too, bioengineering has been going on with inoculation agenda as well. After all, these big boys do not want uh, volunteers. They know we, we wouldn't be, nobody would be volunteer. Well, maybe some today would volunteer for it. But the rest would not want to volunteer to be changed in any way at all. And um, it's been done covertly, obviously. Our immune systems are shot uh, with a, a one-third of the resistance of the, uh, to, to about two years in viruses that the generation prior to 1950 had. And it was really after the, pol- the polio virus uh, and then the rest of the inoculations that came, the vaccinations, that uh, uh, our, our immune systems started to show up. In the 1960s, for the first time ever, we had total immune syndrome problems like the bubble boy, etc. He had been kept in a bubble. Uh, any bacterium, uh, a common bacterium, could kill him. Uh, that was unknown, unheard of before. So we're being bioengineered all along the way here. It doesn't only affect uh, you, you physically and hormonally, which it definitely does. And by the way, uh, a good book to read on this, uh, part of the agenda, is by Charles Galton Darwin, uh, who, uh, relative of Charles Darwin, of course, descendant, and, uh, and the Galton family, the genesist. Charles Galton Darwin, uh, Francis Galton Darwin, said that uh, his book, The Next Million Years, on how the, the elite, the very super elite, would dominate the world for another million years, he said we, we shall have to alter the, the, the hormonal makeup of the male to take away his aggression, uh, and, and the female too. But mainly the male, they could alter them physically, it might show, etc. But they'd have to, they could, by propaganda purposes, and the fact that the most folk will never mention what's obviously in front of their face, unless others are, are, are talking about what's beyond the media. Uh, if the media doesn't, media doesn't mention it, they won't see, they won't notice it either, they won't say anything about it. So even with the changes, the people wouldn't complain uh, as, as it became more and more obvious that the people were being bioengineered. He said, we neither put it in the food, the vaccinations, or the water, or all three. Well, they've done a lot. Yeah. Well, this is certainly done a lot, and uh, it's it's fairly obvious, as you point out, with the the changes in the the physiology of people. Um, you you use uh, I think particularly in the first section, you use a lot of symbolism, and uh, explain the what what it actually means, uh, the numerology involved. And uh, I've I've heard you say many times. I've only read this book once, or the, the, I've read the whole thing once, and really I need to read it again. But um, it's. Uh, you um, explain the, you know, you break down words into their kind of distinctive yeah. parts and uh, explain the uh, the combination of words and what they mean. Uh, could you go into 
that kind of thing, and it's the relation to the the symbolism. Yeah, well, what put me onto it really uh, was was a book by uh, Albert Pike and and uh, the Encyclopedia of Freemasonry by Mackay, uh, and they both mentioned the fact that they never speak Masons, never high Masons. That is not the the, the, the what they call the common ones at the bottom, the Blue Lodge, the Outer Portico, the cover of Masonry. Um, the ones who think they know it all, but they're not. They don't know much at all. Uh, you talk about the higher, the higher degrees, and uh, especially in morals and dogma by, by Pike, he, it was for the thirty-second degree and upwards. And he said that we never speak more plainly uh, than we do when we we speak together, but in public. In other words, the public could be standing around them and even listening to the conversation. You would hear one thing being said while they themselves would understand the inner meanings of the words that they were using, etc. Uh, this is a very old idea. It goes back, even in ancient times, uh, we, we tend to forget in the West that in the Middle East, um, uh, and it's instilled today in some religion like Judaism, uh, you have numbers or also letters, you see. So that you, you can transpose one to the other and have a code, if you like. And they used the Chaldeans in ancient times, uh, invading armies. They'd hire Chaldeans, who also did this, and that's really where it all came from. Uh, and they would use them as runners to carry messages between generals. And they would, they would do markings of numbers and different things on, on these sticks. Another guy at the other end would read it and know what the message was when he transposed it into the language. Cryptology, in other words. It's very, very big amongst all of these secret societies. But they also used, as I say, words themselves. The English language as we know it today really came out uh, around the time of Shakespeare. And Shakespeare is given uh, the credit for, for putting thousands of words into the English language, which became common usage to the present time. It isn't until you break them down that you start to see words within words. And that's the purpose. That's what he means by being able to speak so plainly. When they say a term or, or, or a certain word, uh, it can be have it can have two or three meanings all comprised in that particular uh, word itself. A listener would never uh, even think of that. So it's, it's a cryptology of a, is a sense. And even in ancient times, they said that words, remember, in hieroglyphic form, are simply symbols. Uh, a picture of a man kneeling uh, or whatever is a symbol. Uh, a man being circumcised, that like you'll see often in the stelas and, and uh, the steels and, and in Egypt there, um, because they, they were all circumcised Egyptians, uh, you, you, you'll see that uh, that's a sim as a symbol with different meanings hidden within that particular symbol as to what they mean. But they're, they're picture symbols, and that those same symbols in a kind of art nouveau form can take the, 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 they can be transposed into, say, triangles for a pyramid and uh, things like that. So uh, symbols are, are really a big language of all of what they're talking about. So if you look at the corporate logos of the international corporations that run all your energy, your food, everything you need for, for being, for, there's one big gang at the top, you see, uh, and they all belong to it. They, they use these particular logos that are, that are very ancient, a lot of them, and, and highly symbolic of their function, of what they're, they're all about. Uh, the, the, the pyramid can mean the mountain. They get three ones as well. You can get the, 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 the jacken and boas, the, the two pillars of masonry. Uh, when you, you get the letter M, the capital letter M, because you have two peaks there, you see. So they stand for the two peaks power. Uh, sometimes we say male and female. They control the mind and the logic of everything. 
these are all uh, very ancient symbols used for that purpose right to the present day with, with the, the corporate uh, boys at the top. Yeah, I, th- I think um, what struck me about you've often mentioned that you know the alphabet itself as a series of symbols, and uh, when, I, when I first went to Eastern Europe and had to learn Cyrillic, uh, and you, and I look at that and I go, oh, yeah, that's that's a bit strange, and then and then once you get into it, uh, the particularly the the small letters, what we call the small letters, many of them are, are exactly the same as English letters, but they're, they're right. a dif- but they're a different letter. Yes, mm-hmm. which is, is you know I mean that's it makes it hard for English people to learn that language, but uh, once once you know it, it's uh, it's there. But uh, yeah, I mean the those those kind of I, I suppose if you go further east, the the symbolism gets a bit more abstract. I think um, it, it can be well again too. Even in the modern uh, cryptologists that are involved in all of this kind of thing admit that a lot of uh, the very, very ancient symbology has been lost and changed through time, including even the customs within high, very high Freemasonry itself, uh, as we have been lost, the, the rituals, etc., through time, as they've changed them and changed them. They claim it's, it's absolutely ancient, although really broke out in the UK as Freemasonry, as we know it today, uh, around the, the 1700s, others claim 1500s, but uh, it's all debatable. You know. But it's always been here in some form or another. And it came in with the money boys, because uh, they were they were already... We forget that most of Europe was still bartering and living very simply until the Roman invasion. And in with the invasion came the money lenders. They, were, they always went along with the army. And they acted as quartermasters. They took uh, inventory of the supplies to feed that army, etc. And what they got in return uh, was the right to introduce money into conquered lands which hadn't used money before. And then they had the right to tax it back, and they would tax back money with goods as well. That really hasn't changed till the present time. Uh, so it's a very ancient system, this money system that gives a leisure class the time to have the leisure, which gives them time to then hire uh, good minds that can then study society as we do today, like the psychologists and, bi- and behaviorists and so on, and neuroscientists as we have today. And then they control the populations on behalf of those um, at the very, very top who have the whole commercial system sewn up. They own the trade routes, they own the caravans. They used to go back across the Middle East today, it's all the trade routes. Uh, they own the, the, the ships, etc. Uh, they don't work them themselves, they simply finance it all and own it all. So that hasn't changed for thousands and thousands of years. But they came into countries which at one time lived very simply in, in communal uh, settings where everyone was important in, in a little tribe. And uh, and they had their own systems of making sure everyone was supplied with their basic needs and so on. We take today this 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 whole thing of uh, of um, the consumer society for granted because we've been trained in it. Uh, we have an education system which trains us that's quite natural. In fact, they train us to go out and get that carrot, you know, that you never quite reach. Uh, it's not meant that you reach it because the carrot's getting smaller all the time because of inflation, because it, it, it got built in inflation in the economy. It's always been here. And, of course, only one person can get a job at the top, and the rest of you don't even get a piece of that carrot. So we're, we're chasing a fantasy that we take as reality, and, and we think eventually that's the only system that could possibly be here because, simply because it exists as such. Uh, it's quite fascinating to see this. Um, how it all works uh, the, the understanding of human nature is absolutely ancient 
and power and, and, and these understandings are never lost through time. Even when armies come in and conquer uh, civilizations, as they call them, uh, they always make sure that they recruit all the, 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 the bureaucrats in all ages on board who ran that system, including the religions too, you know. You kind, of, you kind of answered this question, but um, as, as you said, the, the symbolism and uh, stuff changed through time. But uh, I, I mean, have you noticed any kind of modern manifestations of uh, ancient symbolism uh, coming back into back into vogue, as it were? And uh, and and would the likes of um, Bertrand Russell, who travelled east, understand the symbols he saw on the way uh, within the, the different cultures? Oh, yeah. it? there's no doubt about it. Uh, when the British Army went in, was it were in, in India. And at the 1700s, uh, a lot of the recru- the recruits wrote home, uh, and of course they had the travelling uh, lodge with them. The British Army always had a, a Masonic lodge, a travelling lodge with them. Uh, generally, the Orange Lodge, by the way. You know, and they were astonished to find that all over uh, the, the cities and so on throughout India, they all, that when they first went in, they already had Masonic lodges there. Okay, right. They didn't know that. <laughs> the people didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. The we'll, we'll go on to the second. We'll pause, go to a, a piece of music, and then we'll go on to the, the second volume. Uh, a glimpse into the great work. Uh, so, if, uh, I'm not sure what tunes Steve's got lined up tonight, but uh, whatever he wants to throw on, will do. Okay, welcome back to Rally Bites Radio on the 14th of August, 2014. Uh, still got our guest, Alan Watt, with us for the next uh, half hour. Uh, moving on to Volume 2, Alan, A Glimpse into the Great Work. And you start off with the, the symbol of the pyramids, which is uh, conspicuous on the uh, the dollar bill. Um, do you want to start off on this chapter? Yeah, the, the pyramid, again, is um, goes back in ancient mythology. Uh, the writings in it, and, and Enoch mentions it, and all this kind of thing that, that really into the books of Enoch and so on uh, about the three types of pyramids that they tried to to to, uh, to, serve, to make sure that knowledge. Uh, this is a whole key. That, uh, they claim that this, say this idea that's had many many names down through the ages of rulership and domination by what they call intelligentsia has been called many names, including Illuminati, which is a bit overblown. But the power of, of controlling millions of people was never lost, even pre-flood. Uh, they built supposedly three different kinds of pyramids to store the knowledge to survive. And if there was a wooden one and another one, and then there was a, the one made by the, the stone, etc., that survived the flood. So the pyramids always had uh, this, this connotation of, of uh, mystery and power of an elite form. Uh, and we know, too, that uh, they didn't simply start in Egypt proper. There were pyramids in other places too, in ziggurats, that the, the so-called earlier kind of stepped pyramid, the ziggurat type two at, at Ur and so on. So uh, it's always been a symbol of the ancient uh, powerful elite. They also had gone even further back into uh, the Sumerian lands too, where the king had his form of pyramid and a little chamber on top. Uh, the very uh, the pyramid where supposedly the god the god uh, of of the kingu that's where the word king comes from kingu and Cain also comes from the same name but uh, would come down and impregnate a virgin that was chosen uh, uh, with it to carry on royal lineages etc if if uh, and that was added to the kingu's lineage 
So they had all these mystical things that really would be impressive to primitive peoples who were kept illiterate uh, by a literate class. Uh, uh, nothing really changed on through time. Um, we know also that the ancients were fascinated by the sky. Uh, mathematics were really was really born and came out of of the of, of uh, the stars and geometry, etc. And so what they tried to do is recreate heaven on earth, which is awfully interesting because. Um, even in Christianity, you get the, the, there's, there's relations between trying to emulate the powers of heaven from the, from God and the archangels all the way down of rulership, and then an inverted pyramid down to the Pope, and then the strata of priests and the ranks of priests down to the bottom, uh, basically reflecting the powers of heaven. It's an ancient idea right to the present time. So the pyramids, uh, even the ones at Giza, were built to, to emulate uh, Orion, which is the, the constellation, the hunter. Uh, and we call it Orion. It has other names, too, in other, other cultures. Uh, the belt of the pyramid is actually the three pyramids you'll see there. And so they're trying to copy uh, uh, the, the star patterns and have the same power as the gods themselves uh, and putting it on earth. And the pharaoh was in charge. He was the high priest or pope, you might call it, uh, who, who owned and ruled everything that flew, crawled, moved, and dug in the earth and all the rest of it and swam in the sea. So uh, everything, all power is granted to this supreme character, this being in, in a human form because he had the spirit of the God within him, and he emulated the God's kingdom on earth, you see. So that was really the, the part of it. The pyramids, actually building them is no mystery at all. Uh, we know how it's done. Uh, lots of, if you want to get awfully rich, by the way, you, you, you can churn out the books and fascinate people by mysteries, and that's what a lot of folk do. Uh, but we know how they were, they were built, and, and they were built basically from the ground up. Uh, and that's what, that way it was quite easy to put different chambers inside them as you're building different uh, parts and floors to it, etc. Then you put the, the cap on the top and that's it. We also know how they got the, the, the big stones upwards to them because they built huge ramps. You can see it from uh, photographs from the sky. Uh, at long, long ramps. Uh, they could be a quarter mile long or, or longer. And, and they, they, it gave you a long slope to, to, to drag these big uh, stones up, etc. So, but anyway... It was the power of the king. That's what it showed you, that, that it was a representation that he also ruled the, the stars now on earth, you know. So the God, the God that was an invisible God that created everything uh, uh, and brought light to the universe and, and, and light to the world, uh, ruled the heavens and gave this power to his, his, you might say his brother or his son, who was the Pharaoh, who then ruled it in the same fashion on earth. It was, a, it was very mystical. The people were, were brought up to believe in all of this, the peasantry, etc. And, uh, and they took it for granted this was all true. It's magnificent things which are so far out of the ordinary and unfortunately impress very poor people. Um, that hasn't changed today, especially in a system, again, uh, of, of wealth and money uh, where people are paid you couldn't be a king, for instance, and have all, the, all, the, all this luxury and attendance and so on unless you had something to pay them with. So must, you first in, must introduce money and wages, and then you've got your slave drivers and all the rest of it and your armies underneath you. Without that money system, you couldn't get this. And this is what we call civilization. And, and the leisure class that goes with it, they can then become scribes, take the histories, um, 
alter the cultures, alter the, the religions when necessary too, to add things to them or subtract them or whatever, to, to suit the, the rulership of that particular time. Uh, so money, civilization, etc., what they call progress, by the way, uh, is a very ancient system that has been unbroken right down to the present time. Now, I've not been to uh, Egypt, but I've been to Mexico and been to some of the sites there. Um, everybody goes to Chichen Itza, and uh, so I've been there and I went to Koba and another place was, which was right in the, I think it was Koba, but actually in the jungle. And it was, so, it was so vast that you had to get on a bike to, to go around it. That's and right, yeah. and the, they just unveiled uh, one monument there, and you were still allowed to climb up them. I don't know if you still are now. But uh, I went up the top of this pyramid and had the, the slab on the top where they did the sacrifices and all that stuff. And you looked out across the jungle, and you could see these mounds. For As far as you could see, you could see mounds. And uh, there was a tour guide up there. And I says, are, are these other pyramids out there? And he says, oh, yeah, it's, it's, it's everywhere. It's, it's, it, was, it was vast. It was like, you know, it was like the size of London or something. It was huge. Oh, yeah. And, uh, yeah. and um, it says, they won't let us uncover this stuff. It says, they just can't let us uncover this stuff. And um, when, when, you, when you look at it, the, the, amount of, um, the amount of work that must have gone into it, um, yeah. it's, it's vast. And the amount of people that must have been there, you know. Oh, it's, it's a whole economy. I mean, it's a whole economy. Even in ancient Egypt, uh, they had unions, you know, for the, for the stonemasons and the workers. Uh, and they had spokespeople who would go to the pharaoh and plead their case sometimes for increased wages and so on and conditions. Uh, it was a form of socialist economy, uh, which they ran upon. And the, the moneylenders who got the, at that time who came in with actually they used to weigh the gold out, they'd come in from from the other from the, the main uh, commercial uh, commerce countries or commercial countries, uh, merchant bankers as we know them, uh, who would bring the goods in and the the, the the money supply and they'd weigh it out and give it to the pharaohs in, in return for whatever, and they'd also get the pharaohs armies to wage wars on their behalf at times too. And they would get this, this, the conquered ones out of that. They would become slaves for the, for, and who were then sold on the, the, the slave market. So, so all of this comes together with the money system. Without that, you couldn't even get slaves because if you have no money to pay people uh, or give them a cabbage or a turnip, I don't think they would want to be a slave master very long. They go home, you know. So that's really how the system works uh, that we take for granted. Yeah. Uh, so and also also, also what's what fascinating too, uh, from ancient times to the present where those who lead what's called the economic centers of that time to the, to the present day, you get incredible cities, incredible cities with the most, the most incredible uh, wealthy people living in them, surrounded by uh, the class, what we call classes, the working classes, and then down to, to, the, to all the homeless and the prostitutes, and even drugs, by the way, in ancient times to the present, at the bottom. This whole system is ancient, and it's always the same M.O. done through the ages. Yeah, I watched um, I watched um, Apocalypto, uh, Mel Gibson's movie, a few times, and uh, that the the scene where the uh, the captured uh, warriors are brought into the city is uh, that seems pretty uh, realistic to me. You've got all the all the, as you say, the slaves are on the outskirts of the city, all all doing, digging up the limestone and covered in you know this white dust, and and uh, as they they go further further into the city where the, the main pyramid is. You have the, the real wealthy people in the, and uh, different different cultures as well, not just that mm -hmm. that indigenous culture, but cultures which seemingly from all different well, parts is, of the world are there. Uh, well, this is, this, this is fa this is, this is a fascinating part, Neil, because I tell you, 
Britain really copied that same system, or those who came into Britain to go over copied that system or already had it. Because the, the British Empire, we forget that, that the British went into other countries using the domestic peoples initially as troops, and then the, the people, all the people of the country to finance those armies through taxations and so on. But then they created the empire, and in each country where they had an empire, they had uh, the troops, native troops and regiments formed as well, which they would use either on the, the, that, that people's own people or into other countries once again. Uh, this idea of world empire is very ancient, and the Egyptians did the same thing too. Yeah. Yeah. You, would you know much about the, the Bosnian pyramids? Because it's, it's somewhere I wanted to go, but uh, when, I'm, when I'm over that part of the world, I'm, I'm not too, actually too far away from there when I'm, when I'm over there. And uh, it's, it's not something that's uh, advertised. You, you would think that um, a country that's uh, relatively poor um, would, would be advertising this stuff and, and getting tourism going, but uh, it's, it's been kept very, very quiet. I mean, uh, would you have any background knowledge on, on why that would be well, the case? We'd, yeah, we do know... Um there's, and yet there's more to be discovered there yet, but we do know that uh, pyramids, you go all the way back, uh, all the way back in a lot of countries, you'll find them off, off the islands off the west coast of Africa, for instance, they're still uncovering them yet. And uh, uh, in, in fact, uh, Tor Heyerdahl's son, uh, the De Contiki expedition, he was, uh, he was uncovering one um, near Bahrain, I think it was. Uh, and they tried to keep that out of the papers, but it got in because they tried to put a highway through. That's how they came across it. But you'll, you'll find it uh, in parts of Europe, yeah, as well. Because even the ancient Egyptians, we know there was a trade route and a luxury area for for an upper class that travelled uh, all the way from Egypt and then eventually Greek Greece when they had the Greco Egyptian Empire, and and the they they travelled all the way to the Black Sea. That was a favourite resort of even the Romans. And it's thought that uh, it was brought in from from the Egyptian elite uh, long before that. Then, then the, the Greeks took it over, and 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 then the Romans made their luxury resort there too. It was always a favourite uh, resort to go to for the elite. Interesting enough, too, the Black Sea area was the main resort used by the Soviet Union for for all their residents who were guaranteed a holiday every year. The workers, and they would take them to the Black Sea area as well. Yeah. Well, it's, it's actually it's funny because uh, people in Bulgaria—that's that's where they all gravitate to. It doesn't matter what part of Bulgaria they're from; they, they right. all head there uh, for yeah. the holidays. And it seems to be the only place, you know. Uh, it's very, very old, and and also, I mean, the Black Sea too in mythology, or, or it's hard to tell what sometimes what's history in mythology when it's so far back, because a lot of old history comes from, from myths, actually, uh, word of mouth that became stories. But in the Black Sea. Uh, um, in ancient uh, times, especially in, in, in the, the, the religions of India, of all places, uh, they, they, uh, and they, believe you me, they were traveling around too, an awful lot in ancient times. But in India, in fact, they were the, the, main, the main buyers and purchasers for, for the Sumerian people 5,000 odd years ago or longer. So uh, you, you'll find that the Black Sea um, is a bit of a mystery to a lot of scientists because they put a submarine down there in National Geographic a few years back to see, because it was, there was myths that there used to be people living in that valley that, that, where the sea is. And, uh, and they found different, at very different levels, strata. There were definitely old buildings down there uh, that had been sunk thousands of years ago. Uh, and, and if you go into the Hindu religions, they say, because they, they, they claim to have seven periods of great catastrophes and so on. 
um, ages of, of you know, flooding and fire and so on, and then water, that old fire and water thing. Uh, and anyway, uh, they said that, that that area was used as an experimental basin by the gods. Uh, and now, it's, you would take scientists in all ages, by the way, as a, as a primitive person, you'd call them a god, because like a pharaoh was a god too. Uh, people who were educated were technically gods, and even uh, the, the class of Greeks were all descended from the gods, the upper class, and, and same with the Romans. So, you don't go off into mysticism when they'd mention gods. But they said that they experimented with different kinds of humans and animals in that valley. And eventually, these creatures that were created uh, from humans and animals started to eat each other. So they flooded the valley to destroy them all. That was the ancient uh, myth that comes from the, the religions of India. So uh, it's quite fascinating that they had a history of, of something being there, at least uh, buildings or whatever, or people. And then National Geographic uncovered it with their, their, their submarine that time, about 10 years ago or more. Yeah, we're always talking about the island of Dr. Moreau. Um, yeah, yeah. But uh, there's a similar kind of place uh, like that in Bulgaria, uh, where they've got these huge kind of red red rocks that, that go up the way. And mm-hmm. they form all, all curious shapes. And uh, at every level of these rocks, you've got tiny pebbles. The whole area was a sea at one time. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's it's nowhere near the sea. It's it's the other end of the country, yeah. and yeah. Uh, it's um, it's not too far from the Danube. And there, there is, the, I think, it's the deepest freshwater lake in Eastern Europe is there, uh, and the whole area was under hundreds of feet of water. That's right. And you can't see where it came from. And you can't see where it went. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. Oh, we know there's been great upheavals in the earth. There's no doubt about it. It still goes on too. But we have upheavals, and uh, even in South America and Chile and different places, you, you'll find. Uh, that uh, if you climb some of their, their hills or mountains even, you, you'll find levels of beaches and seashells in them, uh, thousands of, uh, of feet above the, the sea level, that one time were down at the sea level, but they got pushed up down through time with upheavals uh, in, the gra- in the earth, so and earthquakes, etc. Earthquakes just don't sink things, they also push things up. And and, uh, and that's happened across Europe in, in ancient times as well, yeah. Okay, uh, we've got what fifteen minutes left. We'll uh, we'll move on to part three. Now, I, I mean, it's you, you've got three volumes here, and people really need to to get a hold of it and uh, and go through it uh, more than once, as I've only done. But um, the third part is uh, esoteric unveiled and the meaning of revelations in high Masonic tradition, and that was uh, two thousand and three. You you completed that one, so you want to take us through that briefly. Yeah, well, I always wondered about uh, in, in all ages of the Christian era. Uh, really starting around the 6th or 7th century. Revelation wasn't included in the Bible initially, by the way. Uh, it was added on at a convention much, much later. Uh, many other books were either included or excluded from um, from uh, the Bible, according to the, the, the political climate of that era, you know. So, uh, uh, but eventually they, they brought it in and then took it out again a few centuries later and then put it back in again. But uh, and, and it's not even to this day. Uh, you know, a lot of the apocrypha, as it's called, uh, is is only contained within, say, the Catholic uh, version of the Bible. But revelation can be used really in all ages. Uh, revelation is there's many ways to look at something, and this is what I find fascinating, uh, even in, in uh, the Chaldean, uh, then the Judaic religions, and so on, which were all kind of from the same source uh, and sources, you'll find that when they talk about something that happened, 
in a mystical form, very mystical language. They're actually telling you about something that, that, that can be made to happen in the future, not by chance, but by direction. They're not talking about God's direction, but of an elite's direction. You can create culture. They knew that back then. You could direct the people to do anything and behave in any way you want if you knew how to apply the techniques of psychology. And today it's PR, marketing, propaganda, and the culture industry. So you can direct them to be a certain way or go off and fight down the road someone else and conquer them and so on because it's your right to rule the world or whatever it happens to be. You can always use the people for your own ends, in other words. So when they talk about uh, something's going to happen by chance, uh, it's not chance at all. In all eras, revelation can be used because this commercial uh, moneyed system, money owned privately by a few, at least the right to, to create it and, and count it, you might say, and lend it and collect it, uh, is the ultimate power of this whole planet and this whole structure of all reality that we know today. So revelation is the consequences of that power all down through the ages uh, and, and yet to come until you have world government. The beast, etc., is a system. And uh, it's a system that eventually leads to total world control by, by an elite, you see. That's what it really means, a system. Uh, it also means that humanity as we know it even humanity between ourselves is, is natural. Human beings, not psychopathic, uh, would be completely altered uh, by various means to alter us. It's not just uh, making the beast in his image sort of thing. It's making all of us the beast in that image. By today, uh, it's taken for granted. It's through uh, transhumanism, uh, altering humanity itself, artificial insemination, um, manipulating genes, etc., the creating of a new servant class. Uh, that's all part of revelation. And it's, in other words, it's always an ongoing plan. When you look back at the history of Britain, for instance, you've had no peace in Britain for, for, for centuries and centuries and centuries. There's not one generation being born that had complete peace in its lifetime. Uh, and, and as we get into this so-called progression or, or progressive society, what they call progressive, we get less and less uh, freedom and peace and every generation, even less and less. It's either an economic fear we're, we're living under, loss of jobs, income, inflation, or it's war, or it's both. But, but these two techniques are used down through the ages, always. And, and you have an international elite today who are definitely international, who are running the whole world. All the international corporations uh, truly have become the new feudal overlords, like Professor Carl Quigley said. And he was a part of this organization that was leading toward, it was working towards this world government run by an elite. They did not believe in equality. They did believe they would use uh, like a carrot again, uh, the idea of equality and democracy for the people to, 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 to fight for them and, and, and claim this world for them, the ones at the top. But they didn't believe that, uh, that democracy would ever work at all. They believed in a super elite uh, and a form of socialism 
which would be a, a top-heavy government bureaucracy and government agencies running man from birth to death, basically. Today you have the scientific elite heavily involved in this and, and well-employed by the same foundations and, and, and international corporations and governments, all working towards the same goal of perfecting man. Jumping back into Charles Galton Darwin's book, The Next Million Years, he, he said basically the same thing, that, uh, that you wouldn't need your mind to, to uh, make decisions for you, your own abilities to make decisions, because the government and the agencies would, would be making all the decisions for you. That's the perfect system for you. But he says, but for us, our, our class, he said, he said that uh, we shall remain unchanged, we shall remain the wild man. The wild man must be animalistic, he must take action, he's an action man, uh, he's not bound by moral rules, etc., or laws of the state or the land. He creates it for the rest of you, but not for himself, because the wild man will be steering the ship, the planet Earth, basically, and must be able to make vital decisions for survival purposes. But the ordinary people will make no decisions for themselves. Look around you today with how they've adapted to, to the electronic systems that have been given and how they, they're, they're walking around like zombies, staring at these silly phones all day long and so on. They can't even make eye contact now with, with each other. Uh, it's working very, very well as the people adapt into different stages of, of this particular plan. Uh, uh, you are being changed. Uh, when you look at any particular story on the Internet, you're being nudged to go and look at this other story. In other words, you're, the formation of an idea or, or has, has been guided by professionals who've already predetermined the conclusions that they want you to follow and come to. And that's all called nudging by the neuroscientists that work with those who design the programs for the computers. All of this is combined. So Revelation is an ongoing program. Wars, rumors of wars, pestilence, uh, we get nothing but fear of pestilence and so on. The idea of squalor, poverty, yada, yada. Uh, are, are eternal in this one particular system. They must go use all of these techniques to achieve their ends, uh, their goals, and and that's what we're going through today. Is it? Is it? They see this. Is, that's why they call this the the twenty first century. Is is both the new American century, but it's also the century of change. And all academia used that term, the century of change, which to the few at the top uh, who really knew what they're talking about, like Quigley. Uh, the 21st century was the century where all that was normal, uh, all that was is, will be past, and all that should be and will be will come into being. A completely new system, a new way of living, a new humanity, you might call it that too. That's all to take place this century, and we're rolling a, 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 along with it, being forced along with continuous wars, and that the Pentagon's own, the military's own papers, uh, magazines, I've read the articles on the air from their own magazines where the intelligence officer wrote one about perpetual war. This is from now on, it's going to be perpetual war. There'll be no peace for the people because through perpetual war, you can get instant change, fast change. People don't question uh, what they have to do and what they have to put up with in times of war. And it's the war on terror. It's a great guise to rush everything through into a post-consumerist society where you're run by government in a communistic fashion and uh, with a super elite of, of the, the wealthy or people at the top, that that's ultimately achieved this century, and they're really running towards it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I've, I've noticed uh, particularly over the last, well, I suppose since nine uh, eleven, uh, real uh, chaos 
Um, and you've mentioned chaos many times in your radio broadcasts. I mean, it really is getting uh, way, way, way beyond anything I, I experienced when I was younger. It's just, as you say, it's perpetual and it's, it's coming from all angles. Uh, we've now got Ebola. Apparently, we're going to we're going to be killed with a plague, you know. And uh, I, mean, I think that myself, that's a move towards mandatory vaccinations and to stop you travelling. I think, well, I think that's, that's the way that's going. Too. Well, that's one thing too. Plus, plus the people are, are are dying off, by the way with massive respiratory problems because of the massive chem spraying that we've been having since 1998. I mean, our whole weather's designed for us now. Uh, they, they've got the drought areas under control. They, can, they make sure there's got to be constant drought. And the, the areas of the bread baskets are constantly under rain and cold weather. I haven't seen no summer here in Canada at all. About five days of it, you know. I've, I've, had, I've, had, the, I've had the wood stove on uh, June at nights, June, a lot of nights in June, July, August uh, uh, and uh, did last night I had it on again. I had it on all week. I was only a few degrees above freezing at night here. Yeah. Well, we, we, we've had a summer this year for some reason. Uh, well, they sprayed they sprayed us one uh, mm-hmm. because the the, the chem trailing has, has been horrendous. Um, yeah. Over the past few months. Um, but uh, there's a there's a quote in your the first section of your book, and uh, I think it's absolutely right. Uh, I don't know if you wrote it or it's it's, it's from someone else. But uh, most people who claim to seek the truth really only want confirmation of those things which they already believe. Truth would require that they abandon their comfort zones and do something concrete to make real changes in their lives. And I think it's about time they got off their backsides and actually started doing something about it. Because yeah. um, if if they don't, uh, they can forget any future for their children and grandchildren. I mean, I've I've got a new grandson getting born next month, mm-hmm. and. Uh, and I, I really do fear for the future for uh, any children being born now because uh, we know we know where it's going. We, we you know we know how bad this is this is likely to get. And I mean, what what do you do? What what do you say to to grandchildren and children? You know, um, and their parents. I'll tell you. I'll tell you, I'll tell you. A long time ago, through experimental schools run in Britain by Bertrand Russell, nineteen twenties. Uh, he got permission to do things to children that other folk were hung for doing, even promoting prepubertal sex amongst them to see if it would work, so they'd have lots of partners and never get married. That, that this is he got the right to do the 1920s by a charter from the Crown, permission. So uh, he, through all their studies, he says we used to think we'd have to take the children from the parents to, to, re- to indoctrinate the children in the proper way to obey the state, you know. Uh, and not be contaminated by the values of the parents. It says, but now we've found with intensive uh, scientific indoctrination, if we get the children early enough, even through kindergarten, etc., or preschool, into school, and through the scientific technique, it says the parents, it'd be much cheaper to let the parents raise the child, be solely responsible for the economic welfare of the child, and this, because this technique is so perfect that when the child goes home, it doesn't matter what the parents will say, all of their new culture will be given to them by an authorised, uh, the, the state basically, their authorised culture will be given by the state, their new values, and they will not be contempt, they won't listen to their parents. And that's been the mantra, by the way, since the 60s, you know, don't listen to anybody over what, 30, then 20, and so on. Uh, that's why, by the way, they also have younger and younger teachers all the time, they don't want uh, older folk uh, teaching the children. Uh, so you can't really fight this. I in Sudbury there are a few um, uh, Mennonites around, you know. And one day at the bus station, I noticed uh, a woman in there uh, dressed in, in, a, in a garb, and a son there too. And they were waiting for, I guess, the husband come back off the train. 
And this child, I don't think I'd ever seen a television before, and there was one out just outside where there was kind of a covered waiting, we had a roof for for a covered waiting place, and a television there. And this this guy's he couldn't take his eyes off the TV. He was utterly mesmerised by it. You can't fight the technologies uh, which are being used today to make sure that the child's mind is grabbed by using scientific techniques, by the way, which the parents cannot put across to them. It overrides the parent uh, the parental input altogether. Yeah. Well, my my son actually um, stood up to the. The medical people, when the swine flu thing was round, and uh, refused to have his granddaughter, his, his daughter, uh, vaccinated for that. And I've spoken to him since, and he's 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 having to try and persuade his wife. He's quite happy not to vaccinate, but it's it's always the woman you have to uh, get on board. And uh, I don't know where that's going to go, but um, hopefully they can work it out and not not go down that road. But um, I, I was. Uh, I was on the the health boards because they were they were trying to cite um, non-vaccination as a, a form of neglect. Mm-hmm. Um, but um, I, I sent a few FOIs off to them and you couldn't get a, a definitive answer out of anybody. But they, they they did say nothing was mandatory; it was all consensual. Blah 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 blah. That's so, right. Uh, at least I've got that in writing. And uh, that, that's, well, I tell you, I do know a lot of people who who've had families and and, uh, and then the, the 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 later children they did not get vaccinated. Every single one of them said that none of them, who, who, the ones who did not get vaccinated, none of them had what was called the normal childhood problems and illnesses of, of this, the runny nose, the, the earaches, etc. None of them uh, had that problem. So even the so-called normal childhood illnesses are actually also induced by the vaccination. That's how devious this whole system is. Yeah, yep. Okay, Alan. Uh, well, we've reached an hour again. It just flies in. Um, yeah. you, uh, just to finish off, you, I believe you're in the process of uh, writing a new book. I've got a few, actually, here. Yeah, yeah. Here go. Okay, when, when can we expect to see them? Oh, it'll be, it'll be the next month or two, a couple of months, I'd say. Yeah, I've got a lot on the go right now. I've been just run off my feet with uh, a little crisis after crisis after crisis, even economic and you know vehicles and all the rest of it. But... Um, it should be fairly soon. There's so much to say, and I don't want to simply speak to the crowd. Uh, I want to, to try and get people... Th- uh, I try to write with a process of, of breaking through the conditioning. That's how I do it, uh, that you're, you're born into and your condition was from birth. I try to break through that to get you thinking for yourselves for the first time and stop following people too. You've got to start using your own brain. <laughs> That, that, that includes a lot of people in this, this so-called truth movement as well. Absolutely. Uh, you're giving your heroes to follow. Uh, uh, nothing's been missed here. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, we'll speak to you again next month. Uh, I'll be possibly on the other side of the pond at that point. Yes. Um, so, uh, yeah, good to talk to you again. Okay. It's been a, it's been a pleasure. Yeah.